Let's pray. Lord, uh, we're thankful to you. It's a, it's a mercy from you that we can gather in the middle of the week and fellowship around your word, and which is about your son and the, the powerful Savior that he is, Lord. And as we th- study these things tonight and as we're somewhat polemic, uh, <clears throat> critiquing other teachings that we think do undermine, Lord, uh, the power of your Son to save us. So help us understand these things correctly and uh, help us uh, have grace towards those who might disagree with us or we would disagree with them. Lord, we long for the day when you will bring all of your people to the unity of the faith uh, of a true knowledge of your Son. And we thank you that uh, your ultimate purpose can't be thwarted and that you've involved us in it. And uh, we, we praise you for that, Lord. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to understand your word. We thank you. We thank you for your word. It does give us light and truth. And we pray that our hearts would be humble enough by your grace uh, to receive it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, what we've been doing, um, normally what we do here, a number of you are visiting, normally we just go through the New Testament in order and we're at the end of the Gospels. But um, some weeks ago, on Sunday morning, we're preaching through First Peter. And we, we, I'm going I'm to review quite a bit because some the faces have changed a bit. We were on this verse in First Peter um, four or five weeks ago about the death of Christ and, <clears throat> and the purpose of his death. And you notice how Peter expresses it here. He who himself, referring to Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on the tree. We know that to be the cross. For this purpose, and notice the purpose, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness. Okay? So, what does that mean? What does that purpose mean? What does that mean? The why he died. If, you, if, you, if this was a piece of scripture you had, and I, and I was to ask you, why did Jesus die? What would you say? That's, that's, your, that's your scripture about this man, Jesus, who died. And I ask you the question, tell me why Jesus died. What's that? Is that what that says? That's not what that says. That isn't what that says. Right. He died that we might live a holy life. Isn't that what that says? Now, what's the first thing say? That he, he, he died that we what? Having died to sin. Or that we might die to sin. There's a, there's a question on the translation there. Let's look at that. Okay, let's, let's use the ESV translation. That's close. But on the tree, what? That we, what? Uh, wrong, I'm sorry. Okay. That we might die to sin. So why did he die? Try again, you guys. Why did he die? That we might 
That's right. Stop. He died that we might die to sin. What does that mean? Right. To stop sinning. <laughs> he died that we might stop sinning. Now, why am I emphasizing that so much? I'm emphasizing that so much. Well, the New Testament emphasizes it. The purpose of Christ's death is more than forgiveness. It's transformation. Got it? And that, that's right what our, our conflict, our, 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 our difficulty with non-lordship theology, that is the crux of it. And this, the other thing that this text is, it's a wonderful text because, you know, there's hope. You and I can be transformed. We can die to sin. Those sins that have dominated our lives, there's hope. This Savior can deliver us and make us holy and change us. See, so the, the purpose of His death here is not focused here on justification or forgiveness. It's focused on transformation. And that's good news. That, I mean, you know, if you're convicted of sin, that's good news. Now, if you don't want to live a holy life, it's not good news. But if you're a real Christian, that's good news. Right? It's powerful, his death, Matthew. It is. That's all you wanted to know? You wanted, you wanted to ask the question? <laughs> You're getting ready ahead of time, right? <laughs> okay. Maybe you can run it around. You want to run it around when someone needs it? I'll put you to work. <laughs> okay. Okay. She does have a question. Yeah. There's a bunch of people online, so we got to pass the mic. <laughs> so it said we might die to sin. That doesn't mean that we'll be sinless. Correct. So as soon as we, excellent question, as soon as we begin to realize that Christ's work transforms our lives, we, we can fall into this other error of called perfectionism. In other words, that in this life we can become sinless. Okay, and churches have fallen into that error. There, there are probably still perfectionist churches around today. Well, no. Again, we need all of Scripture to help us get this right. So, when we become a Christian, we're going to be changed. There's no doubt that there's going to be fruit. And that's our whole discussion here about non-lordship theology. When we're really converted, there's going to be fruit. There's going to be a difference. But we're not going to be perfect in this life. And we're, we're just going to have to live with that tension. So, and... Uh, yeah. Okay. Anybody else with a question? Right. Right. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so glad you brought that up. Uh, like, for instance, right. For me, when I was born again, taking God's name in vain and littering. Biggest sins of my life that I would eventually do. But it goes to motive as we read. We're motivated. Our motivation is completely turned. Motivation is yeah. different, absolutely. It doesn't yeah. take away, we're still going to fall. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, one guy said, you know, I'm, 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 how, did it, how does it go? I'm not, I'm not what I used to be. 
well, no, I, I, I'm not what I used to be, and I'm, no, no, I'm not what I should be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. Uh, there's a, it's sort of like that. And, and I think all of us, if, if we're converted here, we can relate to that. Uh, we're, I'm not what I used to be, but I still know that I'm not what I should be. But you see, what, what I used to be, I never thought I needed to be anything different, right? Yeah. Before we're converted, hey, don't tell me I need to change. You know, go take a hike. <laughs> so, all right. So this, this verse is what triggered these sessions here on, on uh, dealing with this subject of non-lordship trans, uh, salvation. Because non-lordship theology, which we think has gone astray, non-lordship theology tries to d- defend the position that you can be a Christian, you can be converted, and there's no fruit or change in your life. You can, you know, you're forgiven, but there's no change in your life. Okay? And you can live out the rest of your life and never change, but because you believed, um, you're saved, meaning forgiven. Okay? And so, we think that's incorrect, and a passage like First Peter here shows us that Christ intends to change us. So, um, I don't know how much to review here, but we do believe in faith alone. Why do the non-lordship people believe that? Well, because the promises, like John 5.24, um, faith alone, eternal life is promised on the basis of faith alone. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who what? Hears my word and believes in him who sent me, what? Has everlasting life. Amen. Faith alone. Salvation based on faith alone. Okay. So, uh, if someone has truly believed, they have everlasting life. Okay? So, that, you know, I live off of a verse like that. So, um, <clears throat> but that verse is not addressing the question of, well, does my life change when I believe in Him? See, what we're saying is, your life does change when you believe in Him. And everyone who really believes in Him, their life will change. That's our disagreement with non-lordship theology. They'll say, no, you can believe in Him, and your life doesn't necessarily change. That's the the crux of the the issue. Um, Okay, so... Um, a little bit of a review here then. I'm on, I'm on number four on your notes there. Um, three questions explaining Christians who prof- profess faith, but there's no fruit. And there's been three different explanations of that. How do we explain someone who says, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, and there's no fruit. How do we explain that? Okay, so there's been three explanations given, and only the third one is correct. There is the non-lordship theology, the free grace movement explanation. And that explanation is like, well, you're forgiven, and you're going to be saved as through fire. You're going to lose all your rewards. Okay? You're going you're to make it to heaven, but you're going to lose all your rewards. Okay? 
that's the non-lordship uh, position. But then there's, there's other, other groups that have understood this. You know, you're going to lose your salvation. Okay, you were saved, and maybe you had fruits for a while, now you have no more fruits, all right? So the explanation is, is yeah, you, you lost your salvation. Okay? And each of these groups deals with the warning passages differently. Let's review that a little bit. Ephesians 5, 5 is a warning passage. For this you know that no fornicator or unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater who has an, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Okay, so if you're living this way, it doesn't matter if you say you're a Christian. Paul says you're not going to glory if you continue living like this. And he goes on so far to warn people, let no one deceive you with empty words. What? Because of these things, the wrath of God, what comes upon the sons of disobedience, therefore do not be partakers with them. See, so we have these warnings. And the non-lordship people explain those warnings all away. They say the warnings don't apply anymore. You made your decision, you believed in Christ, you're saved, you're forgiven, you're going to heaven. And somehow they say these warnings don't apply. You know, I mean, that's, the, that's, that's not true. These warnings do apply. So, now, but this second group, the lose your salvation group, says, well, yeah, no, the warnings do apply. You see, the second group say the warnings do apply. In other words, yeah, you were saved, but now since you're living like this and you're unrepentant and you're just going on and on and on, these warnings are true. For what has happened? Well, you were saved, and now you lost it. And you need to be saved again. Okay? That's the second way these things have been handled. Well, there is a third option. There is a third option which is biblical, and, and I've called that effectual grace theology. Uh, preservation of the saints. God intervenes in our lives and God preserves us from falling away. Had He not done that, we would fall away. So the third thing is effectual grace. And um, we went over this in some detail last week. You, could, you can get the, get the audio or video. Um, so in this third effectual grace category, which I'm trying to <clears throat> explain and defend, um, saving faith is known not by what a person professes or says, but by fruits and works. That's how we know whether there's real saving faith or not, is it has to show some fruits. And that's why John the Baptist wouldn't baptize certain people, right? He would not baptize those scribes and Pharisees because there was no fruit for repentance. So he refused to baptize them. Okay. So, so this third effectual grace approach says if the faith is real, okay, then fruits will begin. Fruits will come. And, um, you know, James' famous statement, I will show you my faith what by my works in James chapter 2. So, so, what this third position is that I'm seeking to explain is the effectiveness 
of God's grace not only ensures the forgiveness of sin, but it also ensures a demonstrable measure of deliverance from slavery to sin. And where's the chapter that, that as we're reviewing here, where's the chapter that shows us that God's grace delivers us from slavery to sin. Romans 6. When we were in Romans 6. That's exactly what Romans 6 teaches. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That, <laughs> who said that? <laughs> to God, okay. Right. God forbid. We can't. Well, well, why not? Why not? Why can't we? What's Paul's answer? Why can't we continue in sin that grace may abound? What's that? Okay, you need to be quiet. That's enough answer out of you for tonight. Why can't we? What was Paul's answer to that? Somebody else. Well, you are, but why is it not? Why is that not possible? Why isn't it? Romans six. Let's put it up there. Romans six two. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? This relates to 1 Peter, doesn't it? It's the same thing. So how do you answer that question? Can someone do that? Can someone continue in sin that grace may abound? Why not? Quiet. <laughs> Why not? Why can't they continue in sin that grace may abound? They, they're dead to sin. They died to sin. That's why they can't continue in it. You know, I ate chocolate, by the way, this week. Uh, but if you die to chocolate, what? It has no more influence on you. Correct? It doesn't draw you. Okay? So, there's no, yeah, how shall we continue to sin that grace? Now, in Romans 6, we're still reviewing. How did that happen? How did they die to sin, Marianne? Right, but what actually caused them to die to sin in Romans 6? On the cross. Something happens to the sinner in relation to the cross that causes them to die to sin. You be quiet. <laughs> What is it? What does Paul say it is? What's that? No, what is it that causes the sinner to die to sin? What's that? That's right. The body, we were crucified with Him on the cross. Look at this. How shall we who died to sin still live our live any longer or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death okay what therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death just as Christ that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the father even so we should walk in newness of life there's the transformation. We're baptized in His death and we're united to His resurrection for what purpose? Not, not forgiveness. Forgiveness is important, but for something else. It's 1 Peter 2.24 again. That we should what? Walk in newness of life. Let's keep going. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, 
certainly we will be in the likeness of His resurrection. And, and here it is. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, what? That the body of sin might be done away with. What does that mean? That we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been what? Freed from sin. That's how it happens. And that's true for every believing, baptized Christian. Okay? Baptism being the symbol of the spiritual reality of what took place. You died with Christ and you rose with Christ. And Paul's argument as to why you cannot continue in sin, that grace may abound, is because you are in Christ. You are in union with Christ. And whatever He experiences, you experience. And so that's what breaks slavery to sin. And that is good news. (laughs) It's the cross and the resurrection that lead to the transformation of our lives. Yeah, the Holy Spirit's involved, absolutely. But Paul's doctrine of sanctification begins right here in Romans 6. Okay. So, we... And, okay, I won't review the switch discussion, the switch is on. But, um, okay, so, uh, we're over to number... Number eight, the misuse of Romans six. We we went through that last week. I'm not going to review that. Um, uh, let's go. Let's. I think we stopped. We stopped at eight, and now let's go over to nine. Yeah, nine on your outlet. Um, <clears throat> let's pick. Yeah, let's begin there. So. Um, I, I, I recommend that a proper understanding of Romans 6 is the best way to deal with non-lordship theology. See, the, we've already been saying that the work of the cross accomplishes much more than securing forgiveness. And it accomplishes much more than that. And that's been one of the great downfalls of, of Christianity in America, is the reductionism about the work of the cross. What really was accomplished there for us. And pretty much just reducing all that down to it's just forgiven. Hey, forgiveness is wonderful and glorious, so don't anybody go out of here and say, well, that, that, that's not wonderful and glorious. You know, we can't live without it. But the work of the cross is much bigger than that. And it's this reductionism of the work of the cross that is creating so much superficial Christianity in our country. It, it, it just has. You can trace it back to this problem. So, what we're saying here is the best way to refute this non-lordship theology is that the work of the cross accomplishes more than forgiving, than just securing forgiveness. One who is in Christ is the recipient of all the work of the cross. If you're in Christ, by faith alone, you are receiving and are going to receive all the benefits 
in Christ. There's nothing else you need to do to flip another switch or have a second work of grace or, you know, you have it. You need to learn how to use it, okay? And you need to use it. But you have it. If you believe in Christ, all of the works that He's done on the cross and His death and resurrection and seated at the right hand, all of the riches of that power and work belong to you. Okay? You have it all. Non-lordship theology divides what God has made indivisible when He places a person in Christ. We've just read these verses here in Romans 6. Paul says you can't continue in sin because you've been crucified with Him that the body of sin might be done away with. You see, you see that? Um, and so you can't condition that. Um, Paul, uh, we're on 9c. Paul's line of argumentation in Romans 6 when insisting Christians cannot continue in sin that grace may abound is not deduced from the offices of Christ. Nor is he saying you can't continue in sin because real Christians have received Jesus as Savior and Lord. He doesn't invoke the Lordship argument to refute the objection. I know this is getting a little technical here, but... One of the things that we want to talk about is, is I don't think some of, some of the solutions to the non-lordship theology, I don't think some of them are as good as they can be. And, and one of the solutions to the, the, the non-lordship theology has been, well, you know, faith alone, you just can't tell someone believing in Christ is enough. You've got to tell them you need to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. Okay, you need to add the and Lord part. So you make sure when, when they believe that they're willing to bow to the Lordship of Christ. I find that, I find that problematic. Because that does kind of sound like what they accuse us of. It kind of, sounds kind of workish. And it doesn't sound like faith alone to me. And that's why, that's where we're going with this study, not to so much just blast the non-lordship people. We're going to blast ourselves a little bit about how we're navigating these waters. And that's what we're transitioning into. Richard? Is that equivalent to Unitarianism whereby Jesus is not divine? No, that's not part of this issue. Our, 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 our non-lordship brothers and sisters would all confess the deity of Christ. And we would consider most of them our brothers and sisters, though they have a, they have, we believe they have a serious error in this, in this regard. But no, it's not, they're not deniers of, of the deity of Christ. Unitarians? Well, the Unitarians are, but, but I'm not, these, these men are not Unitarians. Oh, okay. These men are Orthodox in that sense. Okay, yeah. That's interesting. The conversation we just had before this, uh, the class had to do with Unitarians, actually. So, no, this is a matter here about how we define salvation. What does it mean to be saved? What's the work of the cross? 
how effectual is the work of the cross? Does it, what does it accomplish? That's what this is, that's what this is a discussion about. So, um, so, you see, Paul is refuting this non-lordship idea. What shall we say? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? But he doesn't go off and talk about receive Jesus as Lord. That's not his response. Okay? So that, that should kind of be a yellow flag to us. Paul knows how to refute this error, and he doesn't do it by encroaching on faith alone. You see, we don't want to encroach on faith alone. Some of you know what I mean by that. And, and, and that bothers me. That's why, that's why the terminology, well, you must receive Christ as Savior and Lord, trying to deal with this error, I think, is a little bit misguided because that's encroaching on faith alone. And, and I, want, I want to show you that as I, as I go forward a little bit. So, so uh, Paul's argument is not based on the offices of Christ. It's not reduced from that. It's, you know, he did, okay, I'm repeating myself. His argument is centered on the efficacy of Jesus' death and resurrection. If, if I could get anything into your heads here tonight, that would be it. His argument is based on, I've died with Christ, my old man has been crucified, that the body of sin would be done away with. Not only that, there's the positive side, I've risen with Christ in newness of life. And the power of the resurrection now operates in my life. And those two things are going to transform me. That's Paul's argument. Okay? And that's the best argument. Okay? It's all right there in Romans 6 against non-lordship theology. It's rooted in the central work of Christ's death, resurrection. And Paul says, when you're in union with Christ, illustrated in your baptism, that you died with Him and you're risen with Him, you're going to be in newness of life. You're not going to be perfect, okay? But your whole attitude towards sin is going to be switched. <laughs> Before, you would justify it, right? You would defend yourself. And now, what do you do? You confess. You ask for forgiveness. That's the power of the cross operating in your life. <laughs> when you have that transformation. That's the power of Christ's death and His resurrection and you being in union with Him. And that's the root of sanctification. There's too many people that teach sanctification even almost without Romans 6. That's not good. <laughs> that's another subject. This is the foundation of that. So, um, yeah, so his argument is centered on that and how these how his Jesus' works impact all who are in Christ. All who believe in Christ are in Christ. How do you get in Christ? By believing in Him. That's how you get in. You don't get in by being baptized. Peter Baptist friends? <laughs> no. <laughs> you don't get in by being baptized. Your baptism is a symbol to show you what happened when you got joined to Christ. And you get in Christ by believing in Him alone. You get in Christ by faith alone is how you get in. 
Okay, so all Christians are in. So, in other words, as we seek to to correct this non-lordship theology, you see, ask questions like this. Is it possible to have the benefit of propitiation from Christ's death? Romans 3, that is, uh, the appeasement of God's wrath by his blood. Is it, is it possible to have propitiation from Christ's death, but not the benefit of being crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with? Is it, is it possible to have the propitiation of Romans 3 and not the crucifixion of Romans 6? No, it's not possible. Those things are indivisible, you see. But so many people preach the gospel as if that is possible. You can have the forgiveness and the wrath appeasement of Christ's blood, but you don't have the effects of Romans 6. That's the error that I'm seeking to refute. It's not possible to separate propitiation of Romans 3 from dying and rising with Christ and being set free from slavery to sin. You can't separate those. You have them both or you have neither. That's, that's the controversy. You have them both. Effectual grace says you have them both or you have neither. Right? And that's Paul's line of reasoning to deal what shall we say? Shall we sin and grace may abound? That's Paul's method. He believes you have them both. Is it possible to have the benefits of Christ's death and not the benefits of his resurrection? No. See, Romans 6 is not only about his death, it's about his resurrection. Raised up in newness of life. You got both. You can't separate those. So, this is the basis of Paul's argument in Romans 6, dealing with how shall we who died to sin still live any longer in it. It can't be done. can't be done because those things are inseparable. You have the one, you have the other. That's the most effective way to deal with non-lordship theology. So... Um, Okay, non-lordship theology divides what God has made indivisible when he places a person in Christ. Christ's death propitiates God and the sinner is also crucified with Christ that his body might be done away with, that he should no longer be a slave of sin. Now, I'm on number 10. We're, da we're down to number 10. Now, yes, there are additional ways of refuting the non-lordship Salvation. And, and these are, are important and they're effective. Uh, and I, I list four of them. I just want to briefly mention these. Some of you <clears throat> may know these, some of you not. The promise of the Holy Spirit. Salvation in the New Covenant. Knowing the Lord in the New Covenant. You know, uh, I will make a new covenant and, and I'll write my law onto their hearts and minds. I, you know what? Some of you aren't familiar with that and that's just fine. Let's read it there in Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant with their fathers in the wilderness when I took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt. What happened in that covenant? Well, they broke it. My covenant which they broke though I was a husband to them. That's Israel's fall into idolatry. Okay? But God's going to bring a new covenant. 
And that new covenant comes in Jesus Christ. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we always say, this is the blood of the new covenant. We actually say that when we do the Lord's Supper. This is that covenant right here. But this is a covenant that I will make with them. It's wonderful. Those days. I will what? Put my law into their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. God takes his law and he puts it in our minds and he writes it on our hearts. Contrasted to the Old Covenant. Where was the law in the Old Covenant? What's the symbolism here? This is really good symbolism. What was the Old Covenant like? Where was the law written in the Old Covenant? What's that? On the tablets. The law in the Mosaic Covenant is written on the tablets of stone. What? It's external. In the New Covenant, where's the law? In written in the heart. Isn't that wonderful? Okay. Yeah. So, does that refute non-lordship theology? Absolutely. Because when you're converted and you're born again, your heart gets rewritten. And that changes your life. See? So this is another way to refute uh, non-lordship theology. I wasn't going to jump on those verses, but they're just so good. <laughs> Let's look at what else is in that new covenant. We're talking about the definition of salvation is more than forgiveness, but it includes forgiveness. Look at this. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord for they shall all know me. What's going on here? This is... I'll do it. We won't finish tonight. <laughs> okay. See, this is a... Con... Some... All right. This is talking about the covenant community. You see, under the Mosaic Covenant, they're all... if you're an ethnic Israelite, and you haven't been cut off, you're in the Mosaic Covenant community. Now, how many of them were believers? Just When you're in the Mosaic Covenant community, you're in the Israeli Old Testament, you're in that covenant. Okay? So what do you think? How many of them how many were, had their sins forgiven? How many were real, really... How's that? Most of them? A remnant. Very few. So what are they constantly telling one another? The, 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 the remnant that, that is real, what are they constantly telling the others? Know the Lord. Know the Lord. You need to know the Lord. You need to know Yahweh. You need to know Yahweh. Stop worshiping Baal. That's the Mosaic Covenant. But in the New Covenant, Everyone in that covenant community, what? Will know the Lord. And we won't do it, but knowing the Lord means transformation. Okay? In the Old Testament, to know the Lord means you are in relationship with the Lord and you're transformed. Like Adam knew his wife. Okay? <laughs> so, so, not only do they have the law written on their hearts, they, they all know the Lord, okay? for they shall all know me. 
from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. Look at this. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Isn't the Bible great? I told you salvation is more than just forgiveness. The new covenant, there it is. There's your definition of salvation by the blood of Christ. Right there. It includes all of this transformation, a relationship with the Lord, that shall, shall know Him. And to know Him and worship Him and trust Him. And it includes, of course, forgiveness. That's what we're arguing for. A biblical definition of salvation. And that all comes from Christ. And you know, the knowing the Lord, this relates to faith. Let me show you that. This is this Old Testament concept. But look at Psalm 9.10. Those who know your name will put their trust in you. There. Knowing the name is to know the Lord. What happens when you know Him in this sense? You trust Him. That's, that's saving faith. There's your saving faith in, in the Old Covenant right there. Those who know your name, if you really know Yahweh, you put your trust in Him. See that? That's, that's wonderful. And, and that's true of us too. The more we know the Lord, the more we'll trust Him. You come to know Him, you'll trust Him. Okay? That's eternal life. All right, so why are we talking about this? Well, <laughs> we're talking about this because there's other ways to refute lordship theology, doesn't it? Non-lordship theology. Obviously, if this new covenant is what the church experiences, transformation cannot be separated from forgiveness. Look, look at it, right? All of these three things come together. You get the law written in your heart, you know the Lord, and your sins are forgiven. You can't split those up in the new covenant. You can't say you have one and not the other. He said, they all know me. They're all forgiven. <laughs> it comes together. And that's the problem with non-lordship theology. Splitting these things apart and saying you can have this, but you don't necessarily have this. And so, yeah. It, now, one of the reasons why this argument is more difficult to use is many of the non-lordship folks are dispensationalists. And they say these verses have nothing to do with the Gentile church. Okay? They say this passage is to Israel. Israel's not the church. That's what they'll say. So they'll get around this one. So if you're going to use this one, you got another big job first. <laughs> the job you have, you're going to use this one, you got to go into Romans 4 and Galatians and Ephesians, and you got to show that, whoa, 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 wait a minute. The Gentiles are here. Why are the Gentiles here? How do, you know, how do we know the Gentiles are part of this? Uh, you ever read, ever read Romans 11? What happens in Romans 11 to the Gentiles? It's a tree illustration. Somebody besides him. Romans 11. How do you know the Gentiles are in this promise? This is a promise made to Israel. Who said that? You're right. They're grafted in to the same covenants and promise. And that's what the root of that tree is in Romans 11. 
the root of that tree are the covenants and promises that God made to Israel. But consistent with the Abrahamic covenant, the Lord's plan is to take us Gentiles and graft them in by faith. So whatever promises you read made to Israel, a believing Gentile shares in those same promises. Right? So there's not one new covenant with Israel and one new covenant with Gentiles. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. And if you want to read a paper on that, you, you can read my paper on that. But so, so if you're dealing with a dispensational non-lordship guy, you're going to get stuck there. You're going to have to deal with all that other stuff in order to use this passage. But uh, So we are grafted in, and, and it's uh, Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to follow up on that, just read Romans 4, Ephesians chapter 2 and 3. And, and you'll see that. Paul lays it right out, and then Romans 11. So these are promises. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Jesus Christ, you are in this covenant. Okay? And your salvation is secure because you are in this covenant. Okay? So that's another way to uh, refute non-lordship salvation. But, you know, there's, uh, number 10b, there's another way. And this does relate to the work of the Holy Spirit. 1 John 3, 5 through 10. Um, let's, let's throw that up real quickly. And Romans 4, the, the latter part where he's talking about uh, justification. Is it upon the Jew or also the Gentile, and and that we're all and how we're gra- we're part of Abraham, we're Abraham's seed, and then Ephesians chapter two and three, um, and uh, yeah, and and maybe Galatians three, yeah, yeah. Why do I think I'm forgetting one passage? But th- those will show you, especially in Ephesians two, we'll talk about how the Gentiles. The mystery is how the Gentiles are going to be grafted in. And the two become one. That's in Romans 12, correct? 11. 11 is the tree, but, um, but the mystery is in Ephesians. But what the mystery is, uh, it's wonderful stuff. <laughs> but, uh, all right, so uh, we're on 10b now, the effectual new birth. You see, listen to John. This is, this is like 1 Peter 2.24. He says it differently, and, and it's relating to the, the Holy Spirit. But, and you know that he, Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins, and that in him there is no sin. Now, now what does he mean here by take away our sins in this context? You, you, you know, you're, you're learning to do exegesis. What, it, what, does, he, what does he mean by ta- he man- manifested to take away our sins in this context? Is he, is he, I'll make it easier for you. Is he talking about forgiveness or is he talking about stop the practice of sinning? Which is it? It is. Who said that? It is the second one. Absolutely. He was manifested to take away our sins. Most people read that. Forgiveness, forgiveness. That's not what he's talking about in that verse. How do you know? Well, in him there is no sin. 
He's perfect. He never sins. Whoever what? Abides in Him what? Does not sin. The passage is not about forgiveness. The passage is about obedience. See that? People are reading their Bibles wrong. There's so much reductionism that everything is about forgiveness. Forgiveness is nothing else. And they're misreading passage after passage. This is a passage about transformation. Isn't that wonderful? He came to make you holy. He came to help you stop sinning. Isn't that hope? If, if you have real conviction of sin, that's hope. So, so yeah, okay. So whoever abides in Him does not sin. Not perfectionism. <laughs> we, we don't have time to explain that now. But whoever sins has neither... It has to do with practicing sin. Continuation in sin is what these verses are about. So whoever sins has neither seen Him or what? known Him. Remember the Jeremiah passage? Those who know Him, those who know you, will put their trust in in Him. John is using that Jewish idea. If you really know Him, you can't continue sinning. Little children, let no one deceive you. That sounds like Paul, doesn't it? This is just like Paul's passage. Let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And here's the Holy Spirit. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. That's the new birth. John's the apostle of the new birth. If you've been born of of God, you do not live a life of sin. For what? Wonderful illustration. His seed remains in Him. The Holy Spirit's seed remains in us. That's kind of like the new covenant. A law put in the heart. Here, the Holy Spirit's seed, He uses that illustration. And a seed has all the genetics built in. You know, you plant a bean seed you get a bean plant. You've never planted a bean seed and gotten a thistle. Nobody's ever been born again and came out a thistle. Right? That's John's point. That's the effectual grace. Powerful grace. And here it's the new birth. Okay? It's not union with Christ. It's the, it's the new birth. So, so this is another argument you can use to refute non-lordship salvation. And you can avoid the covenant discussion when you use this one. Okay? You can use this one and not get tangled up in the, in the new covenant discussion. Uh, let's see. Of course, there's other passages. Effectual, effectual new birth. Effectual shepherding. Jesus is the shepherd. He's the great shepherd. What does he say about his sheep? My sheep, they hear my voice, they follow me. Jesus holds on to every one of his sheep. 
none can snatch them out of His hand. Okay? So they're not going to end up living. Remember those warning passages? So what's going to happen? Those warning passages. I read only one tonight. Do not be deceived. What's going to happen? Jesus is going to intervene in the Christian's life such that he cannot live forever under the condemnation of those warning passages. As the shepherd, he's going to come out and get you and me. (laughs) And he does. (laughs) And he does. So that's how we deal. Those warnings are real. But if we're in Christ and he's our shepherd, he's going to lose nothing. He says that. I will lose nothing. None can snatch them out of my hand, he says. So, so effectual shepherding. And then effectual fathering is another way to refute non-lordship. Uh, the, the effectual fathering. What do I mean by that? Well, Hebrews chapter 12, I'll just... If you read Hebrews chapter 12, we have all received... Well, let me butcher it. Let's read it. <laughs> And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. Why not? Why shouldn't I get discouraged when the Lord paddles my bottom? Verse 6. For whom the Lord loves, He paddles their bottoms. Okay? That's why you shouldn't get discouraged. Isn't that? When God disciplines you, when you start going astray and all of a sudden you can make a one-to-one connection between what you're suffering and what you've been doing, (laughs) and that connection's made in your conscience, don't get discouraged. It's an evidence that God loves you. Evidence that He loves you. That's For whom the Lord loves, He chastens. And this is strong. And He scourges every son whom He receives. Every Christian is going to be loved by the Father. And the Father is going to chasten every one of them. All of us. And that's going to cause us to preserve us If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? And so, you know, you're counseling people and the guy comes in and says, well, you know, you're living in adultery. And, 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 you know, we've been working on this now for six months. And you're still living in adultery. So let's read Ephesians 5. We think you're in a real serious position. You're living like you're not saved. And we'll read these passages and try to help a person. And the person says, I'm a born-again Christian. I'm going to heaven. Okay, see? Then what? Where's the discipline? This text says, He scourges every son whom He receives. We see no discipline in your life. You're just trying to get out of this marriage. And you're claiming to be a Christian. Why aren't you under discipline from the Father? Looks like to me you may not be converted. 
That's what it gets down to. And that's love. If I was in a state like that, that's what I'd want somebody to do for me. Confront me like that. And then if the person professes to be a Christian, he's a member of your church, you do all you can to help him. I mean, these processes sometimes take more than a year. We're not in a hurry to do that. But sooner or later, it's going to turn into church discipline. Okay, that's the last attempt to recover such a person. And you've got this non-lordship theology running around out there telling that guy he's saved. Right? That's exactly right. They're saying, well, he believed 10 years ago. He's got to be saved. That's what he's echoing back. He's, he's echoing back non-lordship theology to the people that are trying to counsel him. That's right. But, how do we get off on that? He chastens, right? Uh, each son that he receives. Where it is? Right there. Right. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges. There it is. Every son whom he receives. So, yeah, yeah. David, yo, David was an adulterer and a murderer. Yeah, he was. If you sin like David, you need to repent like David. <laughs> and he did, Right? God sends a prophet, and finally, boom, he finally break, breaks David's heart. And we know from reading Psalm 32 and the other Psalms, day and night your hand was heavy upon me. He was miserable for those six months. Why? Because God was disciplining him. So that's another way of, of refuting non-lordship theology. Another argument is the effectual fathering. You know, and you who are fathers... Or mothers, fathers and mothers, you are carrying out that love for your child. You do that. And, 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 you know, some of you are pretty young in here still tonight. You know, you're blessed. If you have a mom or a dad that disciplines you, you are blessed. You are loved, okay? You are loved. And, and when God disciplines his, his Christians, uh, they're loved. So, we're on number 10 there. So, you see, there's like about five or six ways to refute this non-lordship theology. I think Romans 6 is the most powerful because it goes right to the death and resurrection. And it's Paul's argument. The whole context is about that. How shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? See, that's why I think Romans 6 is the best way. But these other, other places are also very effective on, on that. So... Well, it's a few minutes after, and, and the next section, Lord willing, we'll get to it next week, is this is now pointing the fingers inward a little more. The weakness is in the you-must-receive-Christ-as-Savior-and-Lord approach. You know, I'd much rather you have that approach, but we'll talk about that perhaps is not the best way to approach people and preach the gospel, and we'll start working on that next Sunday, next Wednesday. So we have, we have a few minutes for questions or comments. Uh, very, uh, don't, don't be bashful. Will you allow Austin also? Uh, what's that? Will you let Austin ask questions? Austin? <laughs> sure, he can ask questions. <laughs> Just can't answer them. <laughs> right, he, he can ask them, but can't answer them. Any, anybody with...
thoughts or uh, I know we've been going kind of like a fire hose here, but <laughs> but you have the passages there, you know, and and um, oh yeah, we got to stop. We we got to do the under. We got to do. I I was thought I was going to do this during the review, but we'll do it. We'll do it next week. You can think about this. Uh, Paul, this is an extremely important phrase. Paul has these under phrases in Romans. Under sin, under the law, under grace. And this expression, under grace, is almost, if you want a biblical phrase to describe what I'm calling effectual grace, it would be this. And, and these phrases mean to be under the influence or control of is how he uses those expressions. And our argument here is, is grace is not passive. God's grace is active and gets involved. And I will try to explain that un- that's what under grace actually means. Under the control of. Okay. So. I was really hoping someone would speak up when you were saying that. This is so exciting stuff that we're into. But on the Romans 6.1, yeah, that is the verse that converted this sinner. Sinner. <laughs> I mean, the, I would love to be on the end listening to that because I told this man of God that led me to Christ, I had a ticket to sin, I, and I would swear up and down I was saved because I know who Jesus is. Christmas, He was born, and He quoted that verse. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And I mean, I walked right into it. Praise God, and I accepted Christ that Amen. day. So this is exciting stuff. Amen. Okay. Let's see. Uh, someone's going to lead us in prayer. Dan, you lead us. Hand him the microphone. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time together, for this teaching. We thank you for Pastor Dan taking the time to prepare this for all of us, Lord. And we, we are just great, grateful uh, Christians, grateful people mm. that you've, you've written that law in our hearts, Lord, that we... We don't want to sin. We, we, we want to war against sin. So it's all because of you. You deserve all the credit. And we thank you for your word, which reminds us of these things. Please get us home safely, Lord, and, and help us to honor you the rest of this evening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.